I want to welcome everyone. Uh, I see some new faces, especially when I welcome our visitors. If this is your first time here, welcome. My name is Russell. I'm the fill-in teacher for Dr. Tim Jennings. Um, today we're going over lesson number three in the new quarterly. So uh, let's go ahead and begin with prayer here and, and we'll get started. Eternal Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for bringing us back safely to this class. Please continue to guide and direct this class, uh, both corporately and individually. Guide us today in, as we study about your humanity and what, if anything, that means and represents to us. Um, we want to thank you for the rain uh, that you've given us, and we also want to thank you for the coming sun as well. Uh, in the name of Jesus, amen. amen. All right, lesson number three. The reality of his humanity. I actually want to start with a quote from S.T.A. Bible Commentary, Volume 5, page 1129. I perceive that there is danger in approaching subjects which dwell on the humanity of the Son of the Infinite God. What, uh, what can be dangerous about approaching the subject of Christ's humanity. We're reducing Christ down to just a man mm-hmm. by dwelling on it too long and not realizing that he is yet God. Okay. Any thoughts or comments on that? It's like we're trying to fit him into our own parameters. Ah. Instead of realizing that he's God and the way that we see him is just a limit. We see him through a filter of of humanity, and we, we can't yet comprehend uh, his infinity. Okay, good. Thank you. Any, any anything else? Any other dangers other than trivializing? That he is a son of God, like some people believe that there's many other sons. Okay. Uh, good, good. I hadn't thought about that one. Good, Lori. I mean, I see it as dangerous because we, I mean, I think there's positives to us identifying with him more closely because he is our high priest. He was like us. He was tempted in every way like us. But it feeds into the the separation of Jesus and God and hoping that our brother is standing between us and a father that we really can't identify with versus seeing Jesus as God. Okay. Good. I hadn't thought of that one either. Any other potential dangers in dwelling on the humanity of Christ? This may have been mentioned earlier there, but uh, I don't think our class stresses as much as some, but you know that he he paid the price. And many think if he was not God, fully God, that how could he fully redeem us? I'm a little uncomfortable with the paid the price language, even though it is, you know, there are some scriptural references that state that. What, who did he pay the price to? Did God, was God owed something? No. He might re- reference that um, something that you do in life costs you a lot to accomplish, and yet you didn't pay anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're a soldier and you go and fight and die, you pay the ultimate price. I mean, you. you like he said, it cost you something. You didn't necessarily owe it to anybody. For the parents in here, who pays a heavier price if your child dies? You do. The child or the parent? Parent. Parent pays a heavier price uh, in terms of loss. Thank you. Yes? Now, on, on that note, it was that Christ was the Son of God that proved that God was not selfish but selfless mm-hmm. correct without that there's no proof and the whole accusation of lucifer against the father was that he expected all of creation to be selfless the angels and, and mankind but he indeed was not and so the wisdom of god hid in jesus christ is that god had a son before anything was created and that through him he created all things that the Son might love creation as much as the Father. This shows the wisdom of God and the love and the character of God above all else. Thank you. Well said. That's an, 
Go ahead. I make one other question to kind of add to the question you just asked, if I could. What is the danger of not recognizing that Christ is human and the Son of God, too? In other words, flip that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. We're going to get to that later in the lesson. Uh, there are, you're right on track. Um, we, and thank you for your, your first comment, which provides a nice segue into Sabbath's lesson. Let me get someone to look up John 1, verse 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you. Uh, two questions. Was it necessary for Christ to take on humanity for our salvation? Yes. yes. Why? Well, for one thing, God couldn't die. <laughs> and he had to prove that, that sin caused death. Okay. Any other reasons why he had to take on humanity? Well, Satan claimed that we couldn't keep the law. Right. So... If God, had, if Jesus had come down, what law? Let me back up a little. What law? The the basic legacy, the law of love. Uh, okay. Good. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, Satan alleged that God's law of unselfishness was unkeepable, and that God had double standards. This was mentioned before. He expected his created beings to to live in a in an unselfish manner while he himself was not uh, subject to that. I think you could say that the Ten Commandments fall under the law of love as well because it, the Bible says that, you know, I think it's in Romans, that uh, the, the commandments basically are love. If you, if you love, you know, your neighbor as yourself and love God with your whole heart, then you're keeping, you know, in a sense, the Ten Commandments or you will keep them. Okay. So he, he had to take on humanity to, re, to reveal that God's love, uh, that God's law, quote, law of love and unselfishness was possible for created beings to. Well, it was for our benefit because we could relate to him better as a human, mm. understand him better as a human. We, cannot, that, yeah, we couldn't come in the presence of God to see God ever, but by God cloaking himself in the form of humanity, we could come and know God and see his face. That, that what she just touched on is really critical. Mm -hmm. In, in um, John chapter 14, the disciples asked Christ, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. We will then believe everything, understand everything, just show, us to, show him to us. And he said, wait a minute. I've been this long with you. You still don't understand my mission. You still don't understand what's going on here. And he says in, in verse 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father dwelleth in me. He does the works. Now, he goes on to say that anyone that believes on me, in verse 12, the works that I do, shall he do also in greater works than these, because I go unto my Father. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You see, God needed a medium in which to manifest himself to the world. The medium was his Son. His Son came, and he gave himself 100% his will to his Father. And every thought, in every emotion, in every action, he never placed his own self in front of the will of his Father. And in doing this, he revealed to us the way back home. And God revealed himself through his Son fully, <clears throat> the character of the Father. And so... When we see Christ, we don't see Christ feeding the 5,000. We don't see Christ raising Lazarus. We don't see Christ healing the lepers. We see the Father in him doing these things. And we see a man that 
gives himself completely to God. And when we realize that, and we read these words, and he says, look, if you will just get this, I'm going to go to the Father, and we are going to come back, and we are going to dwell in you, to will and do our good pleasure, that you might have now the mind of Christ. The Father will dwell in you as fully as he has dwelled in me, if you will just give yourself to him. And the world will know that he sent me, because they will see us in you. That's the gospel. And that's why God had to send his son. Because it's the only being in the universe that could take on a mission like that and accomplish it. The angels couldn't do it. But because he did it, we can. That's why John said in 1 John, now are you the sons of God. If we will realize this message, and we're the only church that has it, we're the only people in, in this world that recognize what God did in His Son. The rest of them all think it's impossible. You can't stop sinning. You can't be... It, the problem is your flesh. The problem isn't our flesh. The problem is our mind. Do we know the character of God? Are we willing to give ourselves to Him? Do we trust Him as His Son trusted Him? Thank you. I was yes. just going to add that um, it was the angels of heaven, uh, both fallen and unfallen, that needed the cross as much as we did. And that um, how many unfallen worlds? So it's... Uh, okay, taking a larger picture that the... the, the Allegations that had been set forth in heaven had not had yet yet to be resolved. Until, Which is okay. one small part of the vast universe. Correct. Let's get back to the the mystery of of uh, Christ's humanity. Um, the teachers quarterly suggested that Christians living today have um, have fairly well reconciled that Christ. Christ's humanity, but in the, the first century church, there was a real struggle with the idea that a being could be fully human and fully God at the same time. Um, let's look at some of the scriptural evidence um, that we teach about, that he teaches about the uh, condescension of, of uh, God to come and take on human flesh. We've already read John 1. Uh, verses 1 and 14. Someone look up Galatians 4.4 4, and someone else look up Philippians 2.5-11, through 11, please. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Okay, any thoughts on that passage? <clears throat> what does born under law mean? Louder, please. The law of sin and death. Adam sinned all that were within his genes. Subject to temptation. Okay. He was subject to temptation. He was subject to temptation when he took on humanity. It's quite a condescension to go from being the creator to a created being. One that you yourself created and you become one of your own creation. That, that's, that's like us becoming a germ. <laughs> well said. What, um, who has the next uh, passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 11? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also highly exalted him, and hath given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Any thoughts on this passage? This being did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and humbled himself unto death. What does that mean? What does it, what does it say about God? That he would give up all of his power to save us. Well, it's quite a contrast to what Satan did. Satan was a created being, and yet he aspired to go higher and higher. He wanted to be above God. Whereas God did not consider that something that he needed to hang on to, but he was willing to to lower and lower and lower himself (coughs) until he became a servant, the very lowest of a human being. Okay. What else does it say about God, Linda? He has that that kind of mindset about leadership that's so different from our set of leaders. You know, in our in our world, leaders are people who climb on the backs of other people and reap the benefits of other people's work and enjoy the power over other people. But he, his form of leadership and the one he wants us to aspire to is the leadership of true servanthood. Um, antithetical to absolute power, corrupting absolutely. What does it say about God's trustworthiness? Is, hey, can, we, can, can we trust a being like that? It's the only way we can. It's the only way we can trust him. That's right. Okay. Well, one of the things that I have a real hard time grasping my mind around is that Christ did this for eternity. Mm. He didn't just make the decision to become a man for 33 and a half years and then be like his father again. He chose to become a man forever. Yes, uh, we're going to get to that uh, shortly as well. You've been reading my notes? Yeah. <laughs> That's in Tuesday's lesson, which we might as well shoot there now. He did not relinquish divinity and the power of divinity after his resurrection. He is no longer limited as he limited himself. His physical power is Well, did he relinquish divinity while he was on the earth? No, he just submitted. He had access to it. He, chose, he just chose not to use it for his own wants and needs. Okay. But, but when I think that he came down and became human, like we are, and we have all the ability, I mean, everything is available to us that was available to him. But yet, he didn't even sin in thought. Mm. I mean, in thought. I know. Uh, it, so it's staggering to comprehend, isn't it? That, that while you know, you're hanging on a cross with nails embedded in your hands and feet um, and people cursing at you and spitting on you, that you you don't even have a thought, I'm tired of this. Well, sometimes thoughts come into your mind Yeah. that you don't even seem to have control of. You can stop it once it gets you. I'm saying it, it comes. Wasn't, it just, wasn't that because, as Paul was saying, it being in Christ, if we be in Christ, he was in God, apparently, the connection all through his life. And the thing that disturbed him at the cross was, where are you? My God, my God, why have you, I can't get to you. That's what really killed him, wasn't it? Not the spears, but the thought that he was shut off from God. Well, he was. He was separated from God. God, but, God stayed his hand to intervene to save him. But all to wait. his life, he had that connection with God. Okay. And that's where we're told if we, which none of us do, but if we uh, per- persevered as he did and made priorities first as he did, that we could rise above sin. And that's the goal, isn't it? Holiness. All right, let's... Since we're heading down this road, let's move on to Wednesday's lesson. So I'm going to look up Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Tina, you had a comment? Well, I'm just, if it's possible, I mean, I believe it is. 
But yet, why have we never known anybody except Elijah and Enoch that has ever achieved that? Or you better need to achieve that. But if it's possible for humanity to achieve that today, why, with all the millions and millions of people throughout creation from the beginning, have never achieved that? I think it's because of our perspective of sin. I mean, perspective of perfection. How, how do we know that no one has? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I don't see how it's possible. Somebody not in thought, not even to sin. Because Christ did. Well, I know he did, but... But it says that as he is, so are we in this world. It's just a matter of, I mean, it's if, if that mindset prevails in us, in each of us, then we're denying the power of what Christ did. And 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 if, if we continually look to someone to see an example, then we're looking, we're not looking in at the, right the place, example we right? have. I don't think it's necessary not to think. As, as humanity, not not to have a thought that would not be a temptation as long as we didn't pursue it. But Christ's thoughts were different. Because of being God, his thoughts had power that could actually be manifested in physical action, moving a mountain. You know, we could move a mountain, but you know what I mean? That, that, um, that we could... That perfection, as far as looking at it, does not necessarily mean free of temptation, free of free of a, free of a thought. I mean, clearly Christ you know, was tempted, yeah. and we have ample well, evidence of that. Negative thought is acting upon that thought or dwelling upon that thought that leads into. Doctor Moses. Also, when Christ was going down to Gethsemane, he made the statement that the evil one was coming, but he found nothing in him. Mm. So, um, when when the devil brings his temptations, if we truly are united and righteous, we have God in us, then the devil will find nothing in us. Yes, he may bring all sorts of thoughts of temptations or whatever, but they are not attractive because they, they have nothing like us in us. Thank you. Well said. Tim has said many times that because of our, our actions or our habits or our thought patterns or whatever, we set a trap down for, you know, things to happen. Oh, okay, yeah, a neurological pathway in the brain and, in, and from the, to the peripheral nervous system, okay. And a lot, many people have said that there aren't many things that human beings do that aren't somehow guided by chemistry or hormones or something, you know. And, and... Basically, in my view, Jesus revealed that when you really know who you are and when you really, you know, nurture that connection with God, that you don't have to dwell on the ugly thoughts. And all every every human being has had them. And I'm sure that Jesus had had the thought, you know. Well, in fact, he expressed it to the disciples. He said, do you not think that I can call so many legions of angels and and take care of all this? But he didn't dwell on that. He didn't dwell on that for a nanosecond, you know, which which would be impossible for us, it seems. But, nevertheless, he he set that goal. He set that standard. Someone read Hebrews uh, 5, 8, and 9, please. We're going to, this is going to give us evidence of how Christ came to the point where he was able to resist temptation and able to Although reveal. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He learned obedience through what? Suffering. Through suffering. And once he was made perfect, born perfect, made perfect, made perfect. Hmm. What does that mean for us? Yes. Russell, you can um, you can have a four-year-old take music lessons and learn to play a piece. They can play it perfectly, but how would you compare their perfect performance to concert piano? 
for that same child when he is a concert pianist. Yeah, or the same child when he is a concert pianist. Okay. So the the analogy is that the musician is made perfect through suffering, through hours of practice, and through... They're three, they're playing it perfectly. But they have grown. But then again, you can look at it like this. It's their choice to become a concert pianist. You could take the same four-year-old who played a piece perfectly at four, but at mm -hmm. 40 had not progressed any mm -hmm. because they didn't make the choice to continue on and practice and persevere and, you know... So, and grow. In, okay. in the text where it says, be perfect as your father is perfect, that is speaking in the context of love, perfect in our love toward one another, not necessarily perfection, never even having love, um, <coughs> evil thought. And Paul gives us a great idea of what perfect love is in, in the well-known passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Um and it's the same thing that was required of us by the placement of the tree in the Garden of Eden. Because God knew that our characters required growth and work and suffering and repeatedly deciding for the right in order to be perfected. Okay. Is the 144,000, they, are they perfect? They've reached a point where they no, will no longer sin no matter what temptation comes to them. Or they've been tried in all points, as Christ was tried in all points. I want to take this opportunity to say that I have no idea. <laughs> there are two types of questions in here. There are good questions and bad questions. The good questions are the ones I know the answer to. <laughs> that was not a good question. In the back. In other translations, this word perfect is talked about completion or maturity. The um, context is of at when he became mature, when he became complete. And I think this continues on with the statement about the 144,000 or any other saint or follower of God, however you want to um, call that term, when they have become mature, um, they are growing into Christ or into godliness. And when we truly have become mature, then Satan's aspects, the law of selfishness, will not appeal to us. No. Because we truly have the law of love working in our beings, and that's who we are like. No. So we will be mature and complete. So... Christ was made complete. He was made mature by the sufferings and what he underwent. And he became the completed individual. But wasn't it God in him? And isn't Jesus in us? Isn't he our perfection? And if we dwell on him and uh, his life and his um, love for us and, our, and his love for everyone, won't we eventually through dwelling on that instead of being so um, overwhelmed by our imperfections and dwelling on them and worrying about our works and how we should be better and so forth. That's not our work. Our work is to dwell on Jesus. Corinthians 3.18, you know, going back to one... In our misery and our imperfections yeah. and become discouraged, and that's not what he wants to do. So, Christ defeated the law of self, Satan's law of self. Uh, he defeated it in his humanity. Uh, he was made perfect through experiencing temptation and through making the choice not to give in to temptation. It was strengthened by his close relationship with his Heavenly Father. Does he expect us just to admire that and talk about it and set it up as an unattainable ideal for ourselves? Or does he offer to empower us and pour his character and his heart into ours and give us the same capabilities? As Christ partakes of the divine nature of his fathers, the two of them are in him as one. He, prom he promises to us that if we will go to the throne 
when we are being tempted, when we are struggling with things that still appeal to us, um, or just plain being selfless. That if we will take the promises of God to the throne of God, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, that we will become a partaker of the divine nature and in that overcome every inherited and cultivated tendency that mankind has to struggle with. It is that union that makes us victorious. Isn't that uh, what the spirit of prophecy refers to as being sealed in the end times and goes ahead and defines it so settled into the truth about God that nothing can shake them or move them. And then you have the 144,000 and which and a large group mentioned besides the 144,000. So it's I think Ty Gibson refers to it as the uh, translation generation, the final generation that will have been sealed and settled. Can we become sealed, settled? We'll have to be. <laughs> Let's continue in Wednesday's lesson. There's a, the, a long list of passages here that uh, highlight, uh, each highlights a particular aspect of, of Christ's coming in the flesh. Um, pick one out. We've already read the last one. We learned that he uh, learned obedience through suffering and then was made perfect. Uh, someone look up Hebrews 2.9, someone Hebrews 2.14.15. See what we can uh, glean from this. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> Suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone. Any ideas? We, we don't have to have a part in the second death if we will accept his death. The second death. We are the living dead. We are walking dead unless we take Christ by the hand and become living. And uh, that's, our, that's our doom. That's the... That's the world we live in. We're not going to live unless we accept Christ. That's the curse of sin. How did Christ's death at the cross differ from the death of the wicked in the end? Or did it? The only difference is that he, he rose and, and the wicked won't. I think there are some other fundamental differences. Uh, go ahead. Well, um, for one, you know, he's Tim makes a big point of going through the various aspects of it. I think it's very apt to look at the second death. You know, did he die um, crying out to be separated from the Father? No. No. He died died longing to see his Father's face. face. Okay, that's one key difference. The wicked will will die praying for the rocks and trees to fall on them. Go on. He also died with the assurance that um, God was his savior, that God was the, the master, and that's not the death of the wicked. He died trusting his father. Another fundamental difference between Christ's death and the death of the wicked. Are there any others? I'm thinking that um, th- this is kind of an interesting term or, or phrase that we as Adventists have, the second death. It seems as though we're dealing with uh, an aspect of dualism that has come through, first of all, paganism in the Greek culture, and then, and then you know, has sort of found its place in Christianity through Gnosticism, uh, and in fact is, is very deeply seated in, in all the languages, the symbolic language of Christianity today. We believe, or many, many people believe, that uh, yes, your body, your physical body can be you know, just ended right now. But your your spirit will go on, and it and it stays in some form of life 
you know, whether it's in God's care or whether it's, you know, actually looking down at some people, at the people that are still in their bodies or whatever. And what we're trying to say as Adventists is that that, that spirit that you think is alive is going to die. But I think what Jesus really did was show that the spirit and the body died at the point of physical death. Unless you have a connection with God which, in which he can return your spirit to your body you know, and, and take you out of time out or, you know, second death or whatever it is, whatever else it is, you know. It's a deep area, you know. Quite. Um, I want to just throw in the yes. second death runs all through Revelation 20. That term is not an Adventist term. Okay. Second death. Since we're on the subject of death, uh, someone read uh, Hebrews two fourteen to 15, please. This will give us a little insight as to what what is death. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being human form. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Hmm. The devil holds the power of death. Translation. How can the devil hold the power of death? For sin and temptation. He keeps us from knowing God. The lies about God. Continue. Through sin and temptation, were you were you going to elaborate? Okay. Um, through keeping us from knowing God. Through deception. In enticing us to wander away from God, who is the source of life. Okay, so if we if we choose to remove ourselves from the source of life, death is the only thing that can result. And, and the devil has the power to encourage us to wander away. It, it's amazing that, that um, in spite of all that God has given to us, to the universe, to, you know, the quality of life, everything, that there is still an appeal from someone like Satan to separate us from God. And yet, it, it, it remains a powerful appeal and a powerful um, temptation or, or whatever, you know. Well, the thing is, what it, never connected to God when we were born. We correct. We separated from God at the very beginning. Correct. Unless we take Him. We have a genetic. We are separated and to die. Exactly. We have a genetic predisposition toward self-absorption. When a, when a child is born, <laughs> what is his sole concern? Self. Me. Self. Take care of me. Clean me. Feed me. Love me. Doesn't care about how mom's doing. Doesn't care about whether dad's, how dad's job's going. Doesn't care about any of that stuff. He cares about himself. I mean, we are born infected, and we are we're born without the choice. I mean, I didn't choose to come into this world. I yes, think sir. The uh, the first death is mentioned that uh, occurred when Adam and Eve uh, sinned, and that's when the connection was broken and so we we have all been born in sin but the first and second death running all through the scriptures and Ellen White I think are one of the points that least helped me as a new Adventist to put it together and uh, I think you you have to keep that distinction that we're all who are born are going to die the first death unless we live to see Jesus come, no matter what state of perfection or whatever. But, well, Enoch, I guess, was translated. But does the Bible ever say Jesus died the second death? I don't believe it does. No. That's, I don't believe it's mentioned there, but that is what, um, that's an Adventist belief 
And it's a is it a, is it a correct teaching that Jesus died the second death? No, not the second death. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, is it a correct teaching? Because we've we've already we've already examined some very fundamental differences between the death that Christ died and the death of the wicked, and they they're not. Myself, Ellen White says it is the second death. He's the only one to have tasted the second death. Who is that? And, and Graham Maxwell all the time has taught it's the second death that he experienced. Well, I'm not sure I agree. I, I respectfully disagree, just because of some of the some of the differences in in Christ's heart and the heart of the. Of those who will taste the quote second death, there there are some there are polar opposites conditions of their hearts. Um, but now, now the, the the only similarity that I see is that they both experienced a withdrawal of God's life giving yeah. love, life giving force. When Christ Christ didn't choose, Christ elected to go through that. He chose to go through that, but. It, it, it tore him up. Death. The wicked are going to want to. Wicked are going to want to embrace that. Isn't that the second death? Though? When Christ died, he did not death. know that. It, he did not know that his sacrifice was fully accepted of God. He didn't know that he was going to right. rise from the grave, and that's what the. Mm, okay, hang on. He told his disciples numerous times that the Son of God. You know that he had to die; he would be raised on the third day. So he stepped forward in in the faith that right. he knew in his relationship with his father that that's what would happen. In the faith, but that's what his death was so total to him because he was separated from the father. That's what the second death is: the separation from God. Eternal. Well, then he wasn't. He, it wasn't eternal. He didn't. No, but he, in faith, he, but he. It was in faith that he accepted that he would rise again. But he did not know for certain he would rise again. That was my understanding. And Sister White's teaching. He said he couldn't see past the portal. Right. Right. And that's so what the second death is. Do it by faith. No, right. God said this would right. happen. So even though I can't see it, because it feels like what's happening to me is just. Total separation from the Father. But in herein we see one of the key differences between the death that Christ died and the death that the wicked will die in the end. Christ trusted his Father. He trusted that you know the relationship that he'd built with his Father was, was built on evidence and trust based on that evidence. And the wicked will, will die distrusting the Father. They will die still believing the lies that, that, that they've believed for a lifetime. Yes. Christ's last statement of "It is finished." Hang on, just a second. It is finished. He died in confidence, yeah. knowing that he was in total union with the Father, even though he did not have any visual um, confirmation of that. He right. died in trust in his Father's care. Correct. He did not die an eternal death, like the wicked will. Correct. You're right. That is not true. What I said. Um, the wicked will, the wicked will come to the realization that they were they were mistaken about about God. But their characters will be so deformed and their consciences so seared that they won't want to spend eternity in, in the in the presence of that. If you go and read, if you go want to read uh, Gethsemane and so forth in Desire of Ages. Uh, is one of the most complete pictures of that and his death there and of the first death and the second death. Okay. So go read it this week. In the back. I'm just going to say, when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's amazing to me how he... And he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb, but it's amazing to me that he can still say, it is finished. It is amazing to me that he can still say that I trust in you and have faith in you. And that's what we're going to have to have, is that faith and trust of God's promises in the end when we feel everything is gone. And and what is that faith and trust going to have to be based on? A relationship? Evidence of, of trustworthiness. Okay, I mean, how many of you trust your spouse just based because based on the fact that they say, trust me, 
No, you trust them based on evidence of trustworthiness. In the back. Right. This is all critically important, you know, to, to understand or to, to come to terms with, with what the second death, quote unquote, really is. And if you define the second death as a and it, the impossibility of your soul being connected with a physical human body again, okay, and yet that immortal soul lives on. In other words, you know, touching on the belief that so many people in this world have that the soul is immortal, cannot be killed, but it can't, it cannot die. Then all this talk about about hell being an everlasting burning lake of fire where people will know that they are apart from the pleasure and the, the will of God and they will see they'll be able to see the uh, paradise but they can't have a part of it all that stuff is true you know but if you believe that that you're you're, you have to be in a physical body in order for your, your soul or your spirit to, to have any life at all, then you really, you know, you really have to accept that, that Jesus died completely, totally and completely, mm. and that it was only a gift of his Father because of his connection with his Father that he came back to life again. That he was, that his spirit was renewed, revived, made alive again. Okay, continuing on that thread, someone look up First Corinthians fifteen verses forty-five through forty-nine, please. Thus it is written: the first man Adam became a living being; the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What version was that? English Standard. Never heard of that one. Any thoughts on that passage? I'm comparing two different atoms, two different beings, one from the dust, one from heaven. So I have a question. Yes. Maybe not related to this, but related to what we were just talking about. What do we make of the passage then that where Jesus said, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down and I take it back. Okay. Any thoughts? Well, it says my father has commanded me to say this, too, so whatever he does. Okay, has. Christ didn't say anything but what was revealed to him from the father. Okay, do we think perhaps that Christ made that statement in faith based on evidence of the, the father's love and the father's power, that he knew that he could take up his life again? And he knew that he could, that no one could take it from him, that he would voluntarily lay it down, and then he could take it back up again. Because there are some people who believe that the humanity of Christ died, but the divinity was kind of dormant. <laughs> Floating in, in the ether somewhere. Mm -hmm. Two for three days, and then came back to life. Well, yeah, okay, uh, let's, let's look, let's go back to... Uh, the temptation in the garden. What did what did Satan promise them? What did Satan promise Adam and Eve? Be like God. not surely. He promised them immortality, and he's been promising to us ever since. It's it's the same lie. Right. The the idea that that if you follow my way, you'll still live forever, and you'll live better. You know the the, the two lies that he's been telling the whole world, and, and it seems like all of Christianity believe it, is the the immortality of the soul. Yeah. And that it, that it is impossible to keep God's law. Yeah. And we still find ourselves struggling with these things today. We just take him at his word. 
You know, we spend our whole lives trying to get financially ahead, trying to get a better education, learning, 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 and struggling with all these things in life. But the thing we really need to struggle with, the one thing that's going to make all the difference with all the other things in our lives, in our family's lives, in our friends' lives, and everybody we come in contact with, is the struggle of, as Christ is, so are we in this world. And that's the one struggle we spend the least time getting educated about and, and struggling with in life. Amen. Well, the hardest thing for me is to be a Mary instead of a Martha. It's so hard for me to not be busy and keep doing stuff and take time, just take five minutes to sit down and read my Bible. That's the hardest thing for me. Well, that's called sin. It is. But and, you know, we live in a world. But that's what we need. Right. We don't need. Like but we're, but it's, we're surrounded by sin. Yeah. We're not surrounded by purity and holiness and all that. Right. We're surrounded by sin. If we lived in a world where every place we turned, we saw goodness and love and all that, it'd be so much easier. But our salvation is dependent on our relationship with God. And that's all it's dependent on. But we don't take the time because we live in all of the requirements of the world that we live in. And it's sin. We just, you know, it's difficult. Well, we need to prioritize. That's exactly right. We need to prioritize. And we don't. And the importance of the Sabbath Thank God for the Sabbath. Sabbath for us. No, th- thank God for a one-hour Sabbath school. <laughs> I agree. Thank you. I'm going to have to close on that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we we approach the throne of grace uh, boldly and and humbly at the same time to to ponder the idea that you did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, and you humbled yourself to the form of that of a servant, to one of, like one of us, and experienced the temptations in every way like we are tempted. And we thank you for offering us the your character, to pour your character into our hearts, to search us and seek us and find find any, uh, the, find the iniquity in us and heal us from that. We look forward to you coming again. Uh, we don't want to ask a uh, care and blessings on those of our group who are not with us today. Bring them safely back to us in the weeks ahead. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for your insight and contribution.